Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 26th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Earlier this week, Dennis Nocton outlined to us what the eight TDs who make up the regional independent group would say to two government ministers about what will be delivered in the budget and what they wished for in return for the group's support. That meeting with the Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure took place on Wednesday. So what did Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath have to say to this group of ATDs? Let's hear now from one of them. Peter Fitzpatrick is an independent TD for Louth and East Meath. And a very good morning to you. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose it's true to say that this is one of the most anticipated budgets since 20, uh, 2008, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, and there's a lot of demand on the government. Uh, you brought your own wish list to the two ministers. Tell us a little bit about the conversation. Well, in fairness, Michael, first of all, I, w- I would like to thank uh, Pascal Donoghue and uh, Michael McGrath for meeting the regional group. As you know, Michael, we're all independent TDs and the group is put together and, uh, and in fairness, we were the first group from the Oireachtas to meet up. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it a wish list, Michael. I would call it common sense and solutions. Like, uh, we, we sat down for 50 minutes. We spoke about the cost of living, the cost of energy. We talked about the housing needs. We talked about vacant homes. We, we talked about transport. We talked about SMEs, education. Michael, we basically talked about everything, agriculture and that there, Michael. And the situation there at the moment is, like, uh, I spoke about my constituency office there, about the amount of people coming in, looking for help. At the moment, they can't afford to put uh, food on the table. Uh, with the schools go back to schools, they can't afford to put fuel in the car to drive their kids to school. Uh, a lot of them can't uh, afford to pay their rent. A lot of them can't even afford to get a house. A lot of people living in streets. and I mean, There's a lot of problems there at the moment. Is, and it's now that we need help. Mm. Uh, we did we did thank them for taking the budget forward to the 27th of September. 
But the, the bottom line is there at the moment is people do need a lot of help and, and we want to work with the government. Uh, as I said to you back in 2020 when I was first elected uh, uh, as an independent uh, TD, I, you, you asked in the region uh, whether to support the government. This, this country needs a strong and stable government. Uh, I thought the way that, that Pascal and Michael spoke to us there last, uh, last Wednesday, uh, they listened to us. Uh, the situation with the government at the moment, as you know, it, 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 the government is, 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 is not really stable at the moment because they haven't got a majority there at the moment. Is and we're hoping going forward that independence will play a big part. Mm. Uh, I, I personally feel being an independent TD, I, I have a lot more sway because, in fairness, the good thing at the moment being an independent TD is that you, you can lift the phone up, you can talk to the T-shirts, the tournament stuff, you can lift the phone up, you can talk to the ministers, you can ask for help. And in fairness, most of the time that we do that, we, we, do, we, do, we do talk. Okay. And we do, we, we, and as I said, you had the word common sense and uh, solutions, and that's that. that they can, I thought it was a very well worthwhile. Okay, well, you made your case. You made your case, obviously. Did you get any commitments from the ministers? Well, Michael, the, the thing was, we met as a group, uh, and you can imagine uh, uh, maybe actually six of the group uh, turned up for the meeting, the other two wasn't available. And you can, you can imagine yourself uh, a short 50 minutes. Uh, uh, Michael McGuire and Pascal uh, Donoghue did say that they were, when the meeting was finished, that they were going to meet it all on an individual basis. As such, I mean, like, cause, like you know, not not all maybe eight of us would be probably supporting the government in in in, in the budget as such. I mean, like, so what they will do is uh, we give them a list of stuff that we wanted to talk about, yeah. and they will be they be they be coming back to us in the next couple of weeks to to to, to follow up. Like my my main concern at the moment is 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 the cost of living, and I have said it before: the recession down the dollars. Like people need help, and people need help now. Mm. And and as fairness, the biggest everybody is, needs uh, help, but some need more help than others, or, or some are more in need of help than others. But everybody needs help. Uh, and I know you were making a, a case on behalf of working people who are, are finding it difficult to, to cope or to make ends meet in some cases. But there are people who are already not making ends meet and who can't put food on the table. Uh, should they be prioritised? Of course, Michael, it should be. I, I, to be honest, Michael, as you know, I, my constituency's office is based in Dog. And only for the local charities in the area, like in fairness, like these local charities, the soup kitchens, the save the homeless, mm. the bit in the pond, they're the ones that's keeping these people going. There's, 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 there's families coming into me, and I said, I, I mm. told you a few weeks ago. And, and, and you were, you, you, like a lot of other uh, people, you were saying that uh, welfare rates should uh, increase in line with uh, inflation. Uh, I think most advocacy, advocacy groups are saying that that should be at least 20 euro. Uh, did you get any indication from the ministers what they're intending to do? Well, what the ministers told us at the moment, there's no decisions made. Uh, they've got approximately 6.7 billion to spend. Uh, Three billion of that, Michael, has already been pre-committed there at the moment. So, mm. monthly, you've about 2.7 billion left, and uh, 1.1 billion of that there is going to be on tax measures. But uh, we, 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 and there's an extra billion then, isn't there, um, uh, for uh, one-off measures? Correct. Yeah. Uh, they said that there is going to be an awful lot of one-off measures. We asked them what were they going to be. They said they haven't made a decision there yet. But I do believe, Michael, is that uh, uh, they were very happy with giving every household in the country 200 euros towards the electricity bill or gas bill there at the moment. Is And I have a funny feeling, Michael, that that is going to continue on there at the moment. Is. Okay. But, like, and that is be universal it. because there was a lot of criticism of uh, that. Uh, people were saying, why are you giving it to the likes of Peter Fitzpatrick, if you like? Uh, people uh, who are, are high earners, uh, uh, and I don't mean you, uh, 
you know, but as a TD, you're obviously a high earner. Um, but why, why not give, let's say, 110 to those who need it most rather than giving it uh, to people who don't need it at all? Well, I think I think at the time, Michael, the reason to give the two hundred right because the, the, the way they did them was Michael that most people nearly got it straight away. Mm. Like, 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 like therefore, the definite example we we did ask them is there any chance of putting maybe a cap on the on the cost of uh, of energy such as that. But the situation there at the moment, Michael, is, uh, it's not only Ireland; all other countries are suffering there at the moment is, and people need help now. And I'm, I'm just delighted, Michael, that that that, that they will give a commitment, they will try to help the, the, the people who need them most of all. Because I think I go home most evenings and I'd be talking to my wife at home in the house and I say, listen, we don't really, really appreciate what we have mm. there at the moment. Is. Like, and I, I, I was never read with a silver spoon in my mouth. I know myself what it's like to have no money. And the situation at the moment is at an all-time low. I think the government realises now that the people need help and they need help there now at the moment. Like even families there at, at the moment, the demented landlords now that have, uh, are trying to get people evicted from their property there at the moment, it's not helping because... Uh, what they're doing is uh, they're saying they're putting the houses up for sale at the moment is, and what, what's happening there is people just can't afford to pay the rent like I know for example when I go to my constituency office this morning I'm one of the queue of people who can't afford to pay the contributions to roads to rent because they, 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 they want to put food on the table their kids to come back to school and we all know being a parent or being a grandparent is we, we, we don't want we don't want our children to see actually what's going on we, we all try to protect our own now but there is serious issues like that at the moment is. And, uh, and then the, the government spoke down about the situation with the refugees, mm. the amount of money that it's cost in taking refugees in. We've talked roughly about 50,000 refugees in the moment from the Ukraine. Also, we're talking about the, the, the cost of the coronavirus, and that's going to continue on there. And then they're talking then also about the situation with the Brexit, the uncertainty with the Brexit. Like, like, and then they're talking then too about with the UK going into recession now in October. Yeah, well, and the biggest know. uncertainty really, though, is the cost of energy, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's already uh, through the roof, but it's, it's destined to skyrocket, it seems. It seems almost inevitable that the huge bills that we're already struggling to afford are going to get even uh, more expensive. Well, we raised out of them as well. Like, like I, I would be honest, like, for the last maybe four or five months, we haven't used any gas in our house. And, and, and I know now maybe in the next year we should be putting on the gas and the same, the same, putting back electricity. Like, I don't think we realise how bad it's going to be because uh, when, maybe at the end of September when people start putting on the heat again or people start using the, the, the electricity now again, all, like, the bills are, are expensive enough at the moment. But when people start using it more and then the, the demand's going to come on then in September, October, November, like it, 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 it is going to get to a real, real, real serious situation at the moment. Is. So I think it's very important that the government sits down and starts realising that, that the people need and the help and the people need help now. And, 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 and in fairness, like, like they were saying that Ireland's in a very, very good situation, but there's an awful lot of people in Ireland that's not in a good situation, as you said earlier on. And these are the people that we have to help out, and we all want to help these people out. Mm, OK, and... Are you confident that that's going to happen? Uh, will you be supporting the government? Did you walk away from the meeting feeling that they'll be doing something to uh, convince you to support them? Well, Michael, the, the, the reason was, 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 was to give them a list of, 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 of material and mm. stuff that we wanted them to talk about. Now, as I said, yeah, we, well, we, 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 we all go back individually to speak to the government. But uh, I know the government will be looking for our support. And the bottom line is, it, it, all I'm saying is it's common sense. It's mm. Okay. It's about helping put food on on the table for these people who badly need it. This kind of horse trading is a great opportunity for an independent like yourself who finds themselves in this position as you do right now. 
Uh, will you uh, be negotiating with the government about Loud County Hospital? Um, Michael, as I told you, I always one of my favourite sayings is, your health, your wealth. I will be talking with the Lake County Hospital. I'll be talking with the, the local community. Mm. Uh, I'll be talking to them about the emergency department, though. Yeah, Michael, I, did, I will, yes. And, Michael, the, the thing I also uh, spoke to the government about was... The what will you be saying to them about the emergency department? Well, I'll be saying, Michael, at the moment is uh, the situation with the Navin Hospital, the situation with our Lewis Hospital. We've got a fantastic if it's a lease and it can, it can be used enough of that mode at the moment. Okay. And, 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 and that's, like, Stephen Donnelly was supposed to come down. No, but, but oh, I know, he was supposed to come down two times yeah. uh, this week and he, he cancelled. Um, uh, people were expecting that he might have said something about Navin when he was in this part of the woods because he hadn't said anything about Navin in two months. Yeah. Um, but uh, what will you be saying about the emergency department? Or There's obviously no emergency department in the Loud County now. Uh, will you be... Uh, hoping to persuade the government to reinstate an emergency department in Dundalk in return for your support? No, Michael. What I would do, Michael, is I'd be saying about the facilities in the Lake County Hospital, about increase the facilities, and that means, what it means getting an A&E back. The situation is, it's mo- the most important thing is, whatever happens with the Lake County Hospital, that the people who attend the Lake County Hospital have to make sure that they're safe. Okay. Like, I, I, to be honest, Michael, I learned an awful lot uh, about, about the situation with the Navin Hospital without there. And about having the right people in the right place at the moment, and that if someone is really, really sick, that it, it, it's no point them going to a hospital that can't look after that there. So I think it's a, like when you look in, in our region, you've got the Navin Hospital, you've got the Lewis Hospital, and you've got the Lowe County Hospital, and it's very, very important that the, the three hospitals work as well together. But the facilities, the staff, and everything else, I do believe that the Lowe County Hospital has an awful lot more to give, and I, I would be really, really pushing that very hard. But one thing, Michael, I did, I did, I did emphasize to, to, to both ministers was that I'm very, very unhappy with the situation with the, with, with, yeah. the, with, the, with the psychiatric unit in the cross lanes. The yeah. amount of people from the, from the Lloyd area that has, that, that, that has tried to get into, into, that, into that psychiatric unit is, is, is unreal. I call it a five-star hotel. Yeah. It's nearly impossible to get in. And when you get in, you, you, they can't let you go in the next six or seven hours. So I did ask the ministers, like, the mental health situation in the country is bad. I said, we do have facilities, and the facilities are not being used at the moment. And the amount of complaints that I have from people that that, that, that they're not getting the proper services. So if if, Mm. if, if, if we do have a situation like that at the moment, it's like, you know, this this is a solution. And I think there should be a review done on on, on the running of the cross-lane. Well, there's certainly plenty of uh, complaints and uh, people will know that you've raised quite a, a number of them here and elsewhere over the last few years. Uh, Peter Fitzpatrick, TD, thank you for that. Peter Fitzpatrick, uh, Chair of uh, the County Board, can I uh, bring to your attention an email that's come to me from Bernie Nolte. Uh, She was at the Glyde Mitchells Championship match in Dunleer on Sunday gone by. The entrance fee was advertised as €10 for adults and under 16s and OAPs were €5, Euro, under 12s were to be free. She says uh, there was a young lad who plays under 16s for Hunterstown who handed €5 Euro to the man at the gate and he was abruptly told where to go, where do you think you're going with that? The fee is €10, Euro, he was told, uh, and she made the point that it, it, it was €5 Euro for under 16 and that, that was the way it was advertised. He replied that under 12s were €5, Euro, uh, which wasn't the case uh, according to the advertising and the young man had no other money. She paid the €10 Euro for him uh, and she says when she got home she sent a, a message uh, onto one of uh, the officials uh, about the incident and was told that all €5 Euro concessions 
are allocated from club secretaries and all entering the gate without concession tickets have to pay €10. Many GAA fans, she says, are not associated with clubs and there's plenty of pensioners who are not on Facebook or computer friendly. In these hard times with the cost of living, soaring €5 could mean a lot to people. Many older people look forward to their GAA at the weekends. It seems gone are the chances of enjoying a double header at the venues uh, because they only seem to have one game on. Why is that the case? And she'd be grateful uh, if uh, we could bring this to your attention and let all under 16s and OAPs know that it will cost them 10 euro and not the uh, 5 euro as advertised. Uh, do you want to respond to that email? Well, first of all, Michael, what happened there last weekend with that young fella should never happen. We, we do have guidelines in place at the moment. Is The situation at the moment is that it's 10 euros in. Uh, old age pensioners and under 16 is a fiver and under 12 is a free. Uh, as you know, Michael, we're, we're a voluntary organisation. There was a mix-up done last weekend. Uh, we, uh, if, 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 people, if people do want the, the, the five euros concession, the old age pensioners under 16, uh, we, we, we pass them to the clubs. Now, we do realise that a lot of these people might be able to do it. And uh, what happened last weekend should never happen. Up. And as I said, these, these are volunteers. They're doing an absolutely fantastic job for us there at the moment. Last weekend in Loud, between Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, we, we had between six and 7,000 people going up. And I, I just hope that this was a, was a one-off uh, incident. Uh, uh, as I said, we, we, we just hope that this doesn't happen again. The situation is that uh, she's on about the, the, the double-headers and the single-headers. The thing at the moment is uh, a lot of players and a lot of clubs, uh, if you do do double-headers, don't have an opportunity to go and see other teams playing and enjoy the game. So that's, that's one of the reasons why we've we done single uh, games. Plus the fact too is that when you do have double headers, uh, then double headers last for four hours. And to be honest, trying to get volunteers, people to stay there for four hours or five hours there, it's, it's nearly impossible at the moment. So I just, I just said is, I just hope that it's a one-off situation. I hope that it doesn't happen again. Uh, and I just want to give me apologies to that young person. As, as chairman of the county board, we encourage as many people to come to games as, as much as we can. We, we, we actually love to see them, the more people come. And uh, I just want to say, just, I just hope that it's a one-off situation. And I just want to say, I want to thank the gay people that do a fantastic job there at the moment. Is and uh, Okay, but if people were overcharged, will there be an opportunity for them to be reimbursed? Well, as I, as I said, uh, Michael, listen, uh, uh, if, if someone has a situation in the problem, they feel as though they, 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 they'd be no overcharged, just tell them to contact my good side there at the moment. And Michael, I will talk to them. And uh, if there would be no other charge, Michael, we'll, be, we'll get the money back. Okay. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. As always, uh, that's Peter Fitzpatrick, who, of course, is uh, the chair of Loud County Board and uh, an independent TD for Loud and Eastmeath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, St. Patrick's Mental Health Services are calling for a renewed focus on accepting and understanding mental health difficulties. Uh, there's always been a stigma surrounding mental health problems and that seemed to have improved during the pandemic, but that stigma seems uh, to be returning to some degree. Uh, according uh, to the Attitudes to Mental Health and Stigma survey, which has just been published uh, this week, Paul Gilligan is the Chief Executive Officer with St. Patrick's Mental Health Services and a very good morning to you Paul and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. We all remember all too well the pandemic and the lockdowns that went with it and we were all fed up to the gills but perhaps the upside to all of that was that we were all 
in it together, to use a, a turn of phrase, and that because we were all fed up at the same time, it destigmatized how we were feeling or if people were feeling a little bit more depressed, let's say, than fed up to the gills. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, th- uh, to be fair, the results and the findings of this uh, survey are very encouraging. Uh, for example, we see that 89% of people surveyed would tell someone if they had a mental health difficulty. 77% would tell somebody if they uh, were experiencing suicidal thoughts. And they're up since uh, 2018 when uh, we, we've been doing this research for the last five, six years. I think you're right to identify the positive impacts of COVID. So aside from the feeling of we're all in this together, 45% of people said that they introduced new ways to manage their mental health during the pandemic. And 54% said that the pandemic presented an opportunity to reflect on values and priorities. So I think what we're seeing is a pattern of movement in the right direction. But I think there are some issues that we still need to address, particularly around people's knowledge and understanding of mental health because some of the stuff in the research would suggest that there's work to be done in that area. As you've been saying, you've been surveying people over a a number of years and you've done comparisons over three different years. Uh, The results from 2018, the results from 2020 and the results from 2022 uh, and uh, I suppose the general question about mental health problems uh, is uh, one that has seen a change over those years uh, is improved in 2020 compared to 2018 uh, and uh, has uh, disimproved uh, uh, we talk about stigma that's associated with it uh, when you talk about this year Yeah so, so I, I suppose it's two steps forward and one step back So remember in 2020, we were all confronted with this pandemic. We, I think a lot of focus was placed on mental wellness, on uh, people's anxieties. I think that gave people permission to talk about mental health. I think a lot of us experienced uh, psychological trauma, which helps us, I suppose, relate to others who have the same experiences. I think we're now going back to the sort of, you know, productivity focused society. I think you're going to see less, I suppose, focus on, 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 on mental health awareness and maybe a little less tolerance. So what we really need to, you know, for example, 91% of people believe that there's a worrying prevalence of anxiety in our society still, uh, despite the fact that they believe that the lifting of restrictions have helped people's mental health. 58% of people are afraid of experiencing mental health difficulties and 68% believe that being treated for a mental health difficulty is still seen as a sign of personal failure. So I think what we're seeing is uh, you know, a trend towards people being much more understanding of others. But when it comes to themselves, they're still feeling that sense of, I suppose, personal failure or that sense of, you know, they've... they've uh, they've really um, let themselves down and we really need to tackle that because in fact looking for help is often a sign of bravery and courage. And not weakness and that's the fear that people have and that they'll be looked on as an oddball. Well that's right and I think you know they say you know you're often you're, you're often crueler you're often harder on yourself and it's understandable if you have a mental health difficulty that you have maybe a negative mindset but ultimately what's happening is that there's deep-seated stigma around mental health and often when you're challenged with those sort of difficulties mm. yourself, you're inclined to fall back on that. But also, you know, you're, I, I, I think as a society, we do need to look at how we view people who seek treatment because 
seeking treatment is the first step towards recovery, not a sign of weakness in any way. And I think that's really something we have to challenge. So, look, it's it's very positive. It's very positive that people have developed new ways of coping, uh, that they focus more on wellness. But I think now we have to really bring home the, the change, which, look, we, we've had a very negative view of mental health and those with mental health difficulties for years. We've institutionalised people for years. It'll take time for us to resolve all of that and move ahead psychologically. Okay. Uh, but is there any truth in that perception? If people uh, tell their friends or family uh, that they're feeling depressed themselves or if uh, their son or their daughter are feeling depressed, or they tell their boss uh, that they're suffering from depression or need a time off work because of uh, depression, will they be looked on as an oddball? I think that will depend on people's knowledge and understanding of mental health and mental mm. health difficulties because very often it's, a, it's, it's and I don't use the word wrongly, but it's, it's an ignorance that people have. <clears throat> they don't fully understand what somebody means when they say, I have depression and I need to get... Uh, psychological or psychiatric help. I have schizophrenia. People don't fully understand that. We 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 do. We have increased our knowledge and understanding, but it isn't enough for us to be able to tackle some of the deep seated fears we have. And remember, fear is often driving our views of this. Mm. Fears that we may develop something like that, that we will develop something like that, that we're trying to contain it. Mm. Fears that we that we take from media, that we take from yeah. um, misunderstandings. So it's really important. I mean, mm. this is about this is a personal journey. It's uh, mental sure. health is always about a personal journey. Okay, it's about being able to assess our own belief systems and be honest with ourselves. But the truth, Paul, is that if we're not to feel afraid and if we're to admit these things to the people in our lives and speak about them openly. Uh, we need to, to know the answer to that question. We need to know that people won't look on you as an oddball. How do we do that? Well, that, and that's about the child. I mean, for example, there's lots of... Well, first of all, it's about education. Mm. Self-education, it's about making sure that we educate children at preschool level, at primary school level, at secondary school level, that we run societal campaigns around... So, for example, St. Patrick's Mental Health Services have a no-stigma campaign indicating how people do very well when they don't experience stigma and they are allowed to recover fully from their mental health difficulties. Uh, we, we need to challenge these beliefs. I mean, it's about challenge. Now, mm. that's not an aggressive approach. That's much more about education and awareness raising. But it's about saying, actually, there's no evidence to indicate we all can experience mental health difficulties. At times, we're all vulnerable to that it doesn't make mm. us any different or any weaker than anybody else. No, and we shouldn't be discriminated against it. And I think the reality of life is that people are quite often discriminated against because of their mental health problems that they're experiencing now or in the past. Uh, and uh, that uh, comes by way of job applications. And you'll quite often see forums asking you if you've ever suffered from a, a mental health illness. And you'd have to assume that that will work against you. Surely there should be a barrier against that. Yeah, and I, I think that's, an, I mean, I mean, there's all sorts of levels at which we need to tackle this. One is the legislation, one is public attitudes, and you're quite right. To ask that question uh, is, is unfair, it's discriminatory. To put it on, 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 on uh, application forms or indeed contracts is, again, discriminatory. I mean, this is, this is an ongoing process of challenging stigma and discrimination everywhere we are confronted by it, and you're quite right. You know, there is lots of legislation protecting people now who disclose that they have a mental health difficulty. Whether that's effective, as effective as it should be, is a question mark. 
this is all about changing employers' views as well. That yeah. a person with a mental health difficulty is a good worker who can do and live a fulfilling and productive life. Yeah, well, it's a bit like ram that message home. It's a bit like asking people applying for a job if they've ever bitten their nails or if uh, they ever broke their knee. Well, or or if they yeah. suffer from asthma, for example, yeah. I suffer yeah. from asthma. Somebody yeah. said to mm. me, "Listen, you know, do you suffer from asthma or have you diabetes or mm. whatever?" Because we're worried that that will mean that you might be able to work for days on end or whatever it might be. That's, yeah. That is discrimination and it wouldn't be acceptable. Yeah, and you assume that you probably won't get the job if you answer yes. And uh, if you have suffered from a, a mental health illness uh, uh, and something as commonplace as uh, depression, uh, that you'll either end up lying or hiding it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't like, I mean, in the work, like, for example, um, over 50% said that changes have happened in their workplace to increase their wellness and mental health. Mm. So employers are taking this very serious. Employers are confronting stigma. They are uh, making sure that there's no discrimination. It's important that we keep that momentum moving forward and not letting ourselves slip back. Hmm. Yeah, and um, I suppose then if you get past that uh, and speak to people generally, the hardest thing to get somebody to do is to recognise their own problems. Uh, quite often that's the case. Uh, and to convince them to get help. Uh, and uh, if uh, there is the stigma surrounding it, uh, that compounds that, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's, I think that's, that's where the personal journey comes in because very often there is that level of self-stigma. And you can understand that. But I think that's where we really have to help people, support people to, to understand, you know, what we can do is confront our own belief systems, but equally try and help and support people to confront their maybe negative views very often of themselves when they develop a mental health difficulty. And that is very tricky because obviously mental health difficulties negatise your belief systems, negatise your thoughts and your feelings. But I think that's really important so that people can be confident about seeking support and seeking treatment. Mm. Uh, and uh, just to conclude, uh, if uh, somebody is worried about somebody else, what should they do? Should they intervene? Should they talk to them? Uh, absolutely. One of the most important, you know, forget about for a moment seeking formal help. The most important single factor is having someone you can trust to go to and talk to. And between that, you and them, you can work out what the next step is. So I would say to people, one, if you're feeling distressed, find someone you trust that loves you and talk to them. And if you're a person who is concerned about somebody, open up that conversation. Of course, you know, Irish people are great at doing that in a non-confrontational, um, non-formal way. And, and it's always got to be done in an age-appropriate way. But open up the conversation. It's really important. Are you OK? And don't just take yes for an answer. Maybe ask, are you sure? Paul, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Paul Gilligan, Chief Executive Officer with St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now you've been hearing uh, this uh, report today on how physically active or inactive children are. It's uh, quite shocking, I think, anyway. Active Healthy Kids Global Alliance uh, uh, lead uh, this drive. Uh, A number of universities have researchers working on it here and they've produced this report card on physical activity for children and adolescents and come up with a C- grade, which is really dreadful because it seems that 65% or thereabouts of children in the country are not getting enough 
physical activity. Professor Donald O'Shea is the HSE's lead for obesity and has a lot of concerns about how active people generally are and are not and is on the line. A very good morning to you, Professor O'Shea. And uh, I understand reading the Irish Independent this week that you're concerned about e-scooters and that that will lead to even less activity for people. Yeah, I think e-scooters kind of are a part of society's creep toward being uh, less active uh, that's happened over the last really 40 years. You know, washing machines and dishwashers came in, so you were less active in the kitchen and in the house. Um, When takeaways were uh, something you went to collect, they're now brought to your door. Um, And in every way society has become more and more sedentary and e-scooters are are better than uh, driving there's no doubt about that but uh, and you're standing on them which is better than sitting uh, but they are likely to replace cycling and walking more than they're going to replace driving Mm. so people will become less active if e-scooters replaced driving they would be a good thing but you know and i know that they are more likely to replace cycling and walking. Yeah, and uh, I suppose people make the argument uh, that they're a great way of getting around, uh, but what I'm hearing you say is, well, they might be, but you could get around as easily on a bicycle. You know, you could, and um, I I think uh, people need to look at their own levels of physical activity, Um, and what we have at the moment is kind of population separation, where you have 10% of our population has never been fitter uh, and they're doing the, you know, uh, Fitbits and uh, tracking their steps. But 90% of the population have never been less active. And as you say, kids who should be default to active uh, as their baseline. I mean, you put a kid outside the door mm. uh, into the garden and within two minutes, they will be running around, they will be playing. Just look around on a beach. Mm. Uh, but... If you allow screen time devices to take over, uh, then, uh, you know, kids are having screen time of up to 12 hours a day. I mean, so I don't know where they're fitting uh, activity and real life into their uh, existence. Mm. Is that negligence? Um, I I don't think it's negligence. I think it's driven by an industry, uh, you know, across... Uh, you know, all the device companies and Snapchat and Instagram uh, to be the norm and accepted and seen to be accepted as the norm. Mm. And if parents aren't alert and educated to, uh, you know, call it out uh, and and, uh, actively fight against it, then the default will happen. And that is uh, sedentary behaviour. And I think in general, parents are trying to do a fantastic job. Uh, you know, we hear the, the statistic that one in five uh, of our children um, are living with overweight or obesity, but that means three or four out of five are not. Mm. And to have kids that are in the healthy weight range uh, in our current societal environment is difficult. But you've also got to look, a lot of those kids, as that report says, 65% of kids are not getting 
uh, the recommended level of physical activity. Okay. And that's the minimum recommended mm. level of physical activity. I think there's a very strong message there from you to parents uh, that this new norm of sitting for whatever it is, 12 hours a day in front of screens, screens is unnatural and that naturally children will play. And I think as we get older, we all look at children and wonder, where did they get the energy? And was I like that when I was a, a child? Uh, but that's the way of nature. Uh, and um, yeah, You know, we were, we were down on holidays uh, the other weekend and you look at kids' behaviour on the beach and, and, you know, they will run uh, down to the water to get a bucket of water to bring it back to pour it into the moat around their castle and it disappears immediately. So they sort of run back down for another one mm. and the squealing and the, the fun. Um, and and uh, th- that's, th- that's natural. Mm. Uh, sitting with a handheld device. Um, and, and they'll do and it all day. <laughs> I mean, this is and, but, but those, yeah. mm. you know, th- those uh, kind of platforms like Snapchat and Instagram, they're designed to do it all yeah. day. games that they download are do-it-all-day things. I wanted to ask you about e-scooters again because you're concerned for the general population. Uh, But we got uh, a text a few weeks ago from somebody saying that there were five and six-year-olds in trim who were on e-scooters, electric scooters. I said it must have been an ordinary scooter without the engine. I got a text back saying no and somebody else called back and said we have them in our estate as well. We had a few messages uh, along those lines. Uh, What do you make of that? Uh, I think, um, you know, they're 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 cool, they're practical, um, but if you're going to allow your kids to use them as their mode of transport, then you have to be aware that they will not, you know, that their physical activity levels will drop, mm. and with that, they will. Uh, just that alone, they will be unhealthy and they'll be much more likely to track into overweight and obesity. And if you do that as a child, uh, then you're much more likely to uh, have severe and complex obesity as an adult. So uh, call it out. Don't let it be the default. And if they're using them, uh, then uh, you have to make sure you engineer other physical activity into your kid's day. Okay. They're serious messages. I'm sure people will hear them loud and clear. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Professor Donal O'Shea is the lead for obesity with the Health Service Executive. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, it's going to be a very closely watched budget in a month's time and uh, the 643,000 people estimated to have disabilities in this country will be watching the budget as close, if not closer, than most. John Dolan is CEO of uh, the Disability Federation of Ireland and he joins us on the line this morning. Uh, a very good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on. On the programme today. You've made a, a pre-budget submission yourself. Uh, what are you asking of the government? We're asking of the government to actually get on and implement very strong commitments they made in the programme for government two years ago. And since then they have, um, and these relate to a number of things, health supports, housing, employment, um, income supports in particular, these are the kind of really knotty issues that people are facing on a day-to-day basis. You talked about the 643,000, but there's almost 20,000 people now in the county of Louth with disabilities. So 
So it's about 14, the 2016 census census was about 14, 14% of the population. Mm. So as far as our listeners are concerned, they're the kind of, they're the people, and not just the individuals, but the families. Families do their best to support and dig out and do whatever they can for for the person with them that has a, has a disability. So we want, the government is certainly talking about it, hasn't got money to solve every problem, but it needs a target. There's no better target than people and families in each community that is dealing with a disability. Remember, okay. and you're saying everyone, that I just want to say, Mike, that yeah, everyone sure. is yeah. living with the cost of living issues and the public service mm. problems, getting ed- housing, getting getting health service. That on top of that, the family and the person with a disability is dealing with those issues plus the issues that they have getting access to really important and, and basic services yeah. that need and their poverty level of people with disabilities is basically shocking. Okay, and you want that to be taken into account when welfare increases are being looked at. The services you spoke about, you're estimating that to invest as promised would come to a total of €637 million, Euro, but €600 million of that has already been set aside. No, it hasn't been set aside. It has been identified. And in fairness to the Department of Health, last year they published a report, a capacity report, saying that over the next 10 years, if we're to meet two things, number one, the unmet need that they now accept exists, fair, fair, that's really important, and the increase in the number of people that will need disability services, that that's the kind of uh, money for that half dozen or that six or seven very um, specific. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. 
BlueNile.com. Specific services that they've, they've mentioned. Okay, yeah. it's a, a lot of money, uh, but as you say, there's a, a commitment to addressing uh, the shortfalls. Uh, but when uh, it comes to day-to-day living, uh, it's all the more expensive to live with a, a disability, is it? Well, try living on 208 euros a week. Like, that's the same amount as someone in a job seekers gets. But the job seekers person is getting that as a contingency payment and there's a lot of support for around people to get back into employment. That's what someone with a disability is saying. Okay, mm. you see someone down the street or one of your listeners sees someone down the street in a buggy or a scooter, right? It's not fresh air that's plugged into to charge the battery. It's it's the meter. Um, so that's just one simple example of an an extra cost hmm. that somebody else And I'm sure you could give us have. many examples, John. Yeah, 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 yeah. buying food, yeah. the clothes, all sorts of... Mm. Uh, there, there's, uh, you can't cut your lawn. You know what I mean? There's yeah. lots of things you would think right. of. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose the reason I'm asking that is uh, to make the argument to our, our listeners uh, why uh, people with disabilities should be looked on differently because you are saying that uh, and uh, there seems to be a consensus across advocacy groups uh, that welfare rates should be increased by €20. Euro. You agree with that uh, and you say there should be an additional €20. Euro. Uh, so that's instead of getting, yeah, uh, instead that, of that figure I'm of 208 that should go up to 248 Yes, because... The, 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 the generalists, St. Vincent de Paul, Social Justice Ireland, all the others, are all, and based on the, the, the science and the evidence that's coming from reputable um, agencies, that's what's needed to keep, generally speaking, people on income supports, their heads above water, what they should be on. What, what we're saying is there are, above those generic things, there are costs that a disabled person will have that are specific, ordinary, everyday costs that a disabled person will have that someone else won't have. So they need that extra lift. Now, that's accepted by government. There was a report done by Indicon in 2004. They got Indicon to do the same, do the report on the same issue again, and that was published just before Christmas. They accept that there could be and that there is maybe eight to twelve thousand euros of extra cost a year across people with disabilities, and we're simply saying, put a thousand into that account for those people just right now to get things started, and not be waiting all the time. Okay. Um, we need it needs to get started. And let me make this point: people think these are big numbers. Mm. That money will not bore a hole in someone's pocket. And it won't be going into someone's savings account. That money will circulate as quick as it lands in that person's hand. It, it will be going into the local economy. It will be going into local shops. It will be, it, it'll be going back to government or we go back to paying, uh, we will say, utilities, um, et cetera, et cetera. When they spend it in shops, they, play, they pay that on it. So it, it's not money that's taken out. It's money that government has said we need to put funding to those people who most need it. And I'm making the argument and let anyone come on and say that I'm off the wall on this. I am saying that people with disabilities and their families 
are under the water level pretty much every day of the week, one way or another. If it's not trying to get kids into schools, it's trying to, to get health services, they're on waiting lists, there's the, 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 the number of people with disabilities. Like, for instance, in Louth, the census, the last, and the, the 2016 one said that 21% of people with a disability were at work compared to 51% of the general population. Mm. Their access to transport is half what it is for others. The housing situation. So these are all um, chronic issues that people uh, that are in your area and listen to you today, many of them have. And I'd make a further point to you, sis. Most people will watch the budget and listen to it and say, right, am I better off or am I worse off? How much? Okay, I didn't cut that too much. Is my tax thing improving? It's whatever. Where do they put money? Okay, supposing, and I'm not, uh, I'm not wishing this, none of us are. Mm. Supposing that family, whether it's on social welfare or whether there's two people working or whatever, find out in three months after the budget they have a little baby that has a severe disability, a child gets diagnosed, someone is in an accident, whatever. The things they were worried about the night of the budget fade into insignificance to what they're going to be facing in terms of the cost of living and the cost of trying to support that person. And someday, someday, this comes to everybody's door, if not to someone directly, to their loved one. No, but, so we're really looking to build a social infrastructure here that is there for whoever needs it in your community when they need it and that people don't have to, to, to be scrimping and scraping and struggling mm. all of the time. You hear people talking about making choices um, um, about food or whether kids go back to school. If that's the situation for a lot of people who are not dealing with disability, Describe what it's like for somebody, family, where there's a disability. Okay. John, I'm out of time, but thank you for your time. Thank you indeed. Uh, for You're very welcome, and thank you for your program. time. Thank you very much indeed. John Dolan is uh, the CEO of uh, the Disability Federation of Ireland. Now, we were talking on the programme yesterday following a, a, an email uh, about uh, a number of posters, quite a, a lot of posters, uh, uh, advertising a, a circus to take place in Drogheda. Uh, our caller said uh, that the town was plastered with these posters, and how could that be? Was it not illegal? Uh, we did contact Louth County Council as promised. Jack, <laughs> where's Jack? Jack was on to us a few times yesterday. Jack, you were right. There is a, an exemption for circuses. Uh, there's exemptions uh, in place uh, for religious, cultural, educational, political, social, recreational or sporting character not promoted or carried out for commercial purposes. Uh, the procedure followed uh, requires a circus, circuses that come into this, to notify uh, the council in advance of a planned circus show and the intended poster locations. So the circus can get a, a permit uh, from the council to put up posters uh, and the posters have to be removed. There's a lot of conditions that the council told us about uh, as well in terms of the size and how they're put up and all of that. Uh, but the posters have to be removed the day after the circus is over. And if they not, if they're not removed then the circus will be fined for each poster that remains up on the poles. Uh, and in this regard, this is very interesting actually, uh, Louth County Council tell us that one circus has already received two litter fines this year. 
Both of them were paid. Uh, we're glad to report to you. And our thanks to Louth County Council for that response. Michael Reed on LMFM. There's an unfortunate uh, reality of life today uh, that uh, you may have been the subject of a violent attack. Uh, You may have been uh, the subject of a gender-based violent attack or you may know somebody who's been the subject of a violent attack because of their gender. Uh, But uh, do you know anybody uh, who's been trafficked into this country? Um, or who has suffered racism or a hate crime, or indeed uh, who have suffered labour market exploitation uh, because uh, they're not Irish people or indigenous Irish people, or even worse, do you know anybody who's been trapped in a situation that you would describe as modern slavery? Because there's lots of people in this country, it seems, uh, who have suffered these crimes. Uh, That's why Duras has launched a migrant victim support project in order to support victims of crime like racism, trafficking and hate crimes. Let's speak to John Dolan, who's the CEO, or I beg your pardon, to John Lannan, uh, who's the CEO of Duras. Good morning to you, John. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Most of us can't even perceive what it would be like to be in those situations. Uh, It's impossible to contemplate the idea of being a victim of trafficking or to be held as a slave. But that is the reality of life for far too many people living in this country. Many of them are are neighbours. Absolutely. Um, Good good morning to to you and the listeners. Um, And like anybody else, people from a migrant or refugee background can be a victim of crime, but as you've outlined there, there are particular vulnerabilities, there are particular risks, there are particular crimes that um, people in that situation are more vulnerable to and more likely to have experienced. And we know over our 22 years of existence in Doris, we've been supporting um, migrants and refugees who are victims of domestic violence or of human trafficking, of experienced racism or discrimination, or have been victims of hate crime. We've been providing information on their rights. We've been referring people to other organizations like Domestic Abuse Service as an, and refuges, helping people get, you know, be able to report the crimes to the Gardaí, accompanying them to court cases even. So what we're now doing is putting that in a more structured and, and, and formal sort of approach where we we can provide a range of supports and assistances to people who are in that situation. Um, And and there are just a range of barriers that that we want to help to overcome and address Mm. for migrants and refugees. Okay, I take it the first barrier to overcome is identifying people. And if you do identify people who are in some of these situations, if they've been trafficked into the country or if they're working as slaves uh, as such, uh, to give them the confidence to come forward, uh, to do something to help them not be afraid to come forward. Absolutely. Um, in, in many cases, people are unable to come forward or are fearful about coming forward. So um, they they may have limited knowledge or experience of their rights and and of what they they can do. There may be language barriers, there may be cultural barriers. Um, There's often limited knowledge and training on the part of the the service providers and on the people who should be able to respond, including the Gardaí, the health services and 
and, and others. Um, they, they say their situations may be complicated by immigration or asylum issues. They may have had very negative experiences with authorities in other parts of the country and are fearful of coming forward as a result of that. So there, there are a whole range of, of barriers and difficulties that are faced there by migrant victims of crime. Mm. And we often hear reports uh, that their family back home are under threat uh, that if they try to do something about their own situation, they're told that the gangs uh, who are enslaving them or who have trafficked them here uh, threaten to hurt uh, or, or do something uh, to family members back in their native country. Absolutely. So the, the threat, the, there are threats um, hanging over people in terms of their own families in other parts of the world, maybe even their own families here in Ireland as well. Um, or, or themselves. So, for example, you know, a woman who's a victim of ongoing domestic abuse may be told by her partner or husband that if she leaves, she'll be deported and sent back to the country of origin. But one of the ways that we come in is to, you know, first of all, help the, the woman to get connected with the um, with a refuge or, or, or a shelter where she, she can be physically safe, but then to help her to get her own immigration independent immigration status set up so that she is able to continue to live in, in Ireland safely and security and, and away from that um, abusive situation. Mm. A lot of this is foreign to us or alien to us, if uh, you prefer, John. Uh, but uh, when it comes uh, to racism, um, I'm sure there's many of our listeners who've never been subjected to racism, but perhaps uh, they've been on the other side and have been guilty of racism. How prevalent is it? Um, it, it varies. So so it comes in, in many different forms and shapes. There's the, the very sort of obvious um, physical and verbal attacks on, on people on, on the streets, and we can see racist graffiti. We see... Um, so, so many things that are clearly wrong, but then in many other shapes and forms, there there are um, ways in which people are discriminated against or they're excluded, and and this happens, you know, as a result of intentional or unintentional attitudes of 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 many of us in in many cases. But we also find that there are you know there, there are levels of of systemic or institutionalized racism where people continue to be excluded from society. They don't have access to, to services, for example, or they're treated differently if they're from a particular cultural or ethnic background. Um, we find direct provision, for example, is essentially a, a very racist um, response to, to people from from other parts of the world who come here seeking international protection. And, of course, we've had in Ireland for, for many, many years, for, for decades, the travelling community have experienced racism in Ireland. Okay. Um, can you understand racism? Uh, you, you talk about institutional uh, racism. Uh, speaking to a, a group of nurses recently, migrant nurses working in the system, we'd all be lost without them. And any time anybody mentions nurses working in uh, Irish healthcare centres, uh, here, whether it's in hospitals or elsewhere, they have nothing but praise for them. But apparently they're subjected to all sorts of, of racism, but not just from people who they're treating, but from their superiors uh, and their employers. Yes, in, indeed. And, and in in many cases, we find that employers have 
what, what may be unintentional biases um, against people from a particular ethnic or, or religious or, or linguistic um, background. There, there are other cases then where, where people are just um, racist in their attitude in terms of not accepting that an individual from a particular background has the same rights as as everybody else here in Ireland. But I think a lot of this comes down to just ensuring that people are informed, that they're engaged with, that we recognise and that we understand the value of diversity, that it's here to stay with us, but also that we understand the negative impact that racism has on all of us, not just on the people that are the the, the victims or the subjects of of the racism and the discrimination and the abuse. Mm. Why do you think that people are racist? Is it a, a superior complex or is it an inferior po- complex? I always tend to think it, it's the latter, that it, it's um, a fear of people, um, a, a fear of, of something that's different. Uh, and um, it's quite often a sign of weakness in people themselves uh, when they try to prove that they're better than other people because of their skin, their race, their religion or whatever it is. Yeah, I I think we could do a lot better starting at national level of ensuring that we do not divide people or that we do not pit one group against another when it comes to the limited resources that we've got. Doris is a human rights organisation and we always start from the basis of the fact that everybody has rights, has the same rights, needs to be treated equally within our society and that's not the case in in Ireland um, today as as in any other part of the the world. But we've got to be proactive and we've got even at a national level to ensure that we do have an effective um, migrant integration strategy that's resourced, that we put flesh on, that we and that we work proactively to ensure that everybody is included in Irish society and that the training is done across the board then and that we all know whether we're working in a school or we're just in, in, in a restaurant or, or mm. just meeting others on the streets that we we, we understand, we recognise that everybody must be treated equally. And I think we have to recognise as well that there are for often inexplicable reasons um, people who attempt to undermine the, um, the the welcome that most Irish people will naturally give to people from from any part of the world. You know, we're we're, we're a nation, we're a people who have travelled all over the world. By and large, we're happy to see others from other parts of the world here. Mm. But we have elements of the far right who, for some bizarre and often inexplicable reasons, try to undermine and. I think that's the classic case of the inferior complex. Uh, they really are <laughs> quite often people uh, who, who uh, are right to feel inferior, <laughs> I think, quite often uh, when I hear them speak. Uh, but uh, do you think that generally we're making a mistake here, that uh, we're repeating a mistake that was made elsewhere, that uh, we're seeing a ghettoization or segregation of people when they come into this country? Uh, there seems to be a, a great attitude uh, with young people uh, dealing with uh, the... Uh, people who have not uh, an Irish origin in their schools and so on. That, that, that appears to be the case on one level. But on another level, uh, when you see groups of black kids hanging out together, 
uh, and never mixing with white kids, you, you, you have to wonder uh, if there's a reason for that or if there's a, a problem with integrating. There was a, a report recently, I'm sure, John, you heard about all of the drug problems in uh, the greater Drogheda area and the gangs and the killings and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, that was looking at the community generally uh, and asking um, what can we do uh, to make the future better for the young people that are coming up now? Um, one of the things it pointed to was an interracial problem that is bubbling under the surface that it, it, it is not being tackled or looked at uh, at this stage. Is there more that we could do uh, in terms of coming together and getting to know each other uh, uh, because we're neighbours rather than because we look different to each other? Yeah, I think we can do a lot more to address the systems that exclude people here in Ireland. And we've done this for many, many years with the travel community, for example, in terms of the way in which they've been excluded in terms of the... And and even today we find that just recently it was um, shown again that the budgets that are available for traveller accommodation are not even being spent by many local authorities. If we look at how many people from a migrant or refugee background start their lives here in Ireland. You know, they, they may have come seeking international protection, so they're excluded by being forced to live for, for years in a remote direct provision centre. Or they're being excluded by not being given the access to English language classes that they need to be able to find decent work. Um, or or they're find that they are at the lowest rung of the ladder when it comes to getting um decent or adequate um, accommodation and as a result of that are living um, in substandard um, and often congregated settings and, and, and we have that ghettoisation that, that you talk about. Yeah. We're looking at schools where not every school is is, is multicultural or multi-ethnic or taking people from different backgrounds. So people from a particular ethnicity or, or community may be going to a small number of the, the schools in the city, for example. So we, we need to do a lot more to ensure that integration happens across the board, that it becomes the norm and that we don't continue to develop systems that, that get ghettoise and that exclude people. Okay, and uh, to follow on from that, uh, do we all have a responsibility to look around us and to see what's happening and to object if we think somebody is being paid below the minimum wage because they're a foreigner uh, or they're not getting the same terms and conditions in employment that somebody else would or if they're working as a prostitute or farming marijuana in a grow house? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've always all got a responsibility to speak up if we see anybody being being abused or, or being discriminated against. And it's not always easy for us to, to do that. So I think we, we've all got to inform ourselves, first of all, about um, about our, our rights. So when it comes to um, that piece that I was speaking about in terms of our Migrant Victim Support Project, where you know, awareness raising, ensuring people have the information and the knowledge of their rights is really important for migrants and refugees. It's also important for everybody else as well to ensure that they understand and that they know that it's just not right and it's in nobody's interest to discriminate and to treat people um, differently or to discriminate against them. Because if you introduce or if you have inequalities within a workplace, for example, then that's not 
conducive to um, any of the, the, the outputs or the effective workings of that workplace. So it's in everybody's interest to ensure that people are all treated fairly. Okay, John. It's wonderful work you do in Duras and uh, I'm sure our listeners will be more than happy to support the work that you do in Duras uh, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. John Dolan, CEO, uh, or bigger pardon, John Lannan. Uh, I'm sorry, my notes are here beside each other and apologies again to you, John. Uh, John Lannan is uh, the CEO of Duras. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, I, I told you Jack was right uh, saying there was a, an exemption when it comes to putting uh, posters on lampposts for circuses uh, and uh, Jack has uh, texted in since I, I mentioned that and he says, if you need to know anything else, give me a call. You could start with the winning lottery numbers tomorrow, please, Jack. Uh, just send us a text if you would. Uh, but uh, thank you indeed uh, again for making contact. Now, we've been trying to make contact ourselves with uh, Sinn Féin TD for Meath West, Johnny Gurk, as you've been hearing. One of his four properties that he's renting out uh, has not been registered with uh, the Residential Tenancies Board. He, he said it was a mistake that was made by the letting agency. It's been rectified. Uh, but it is a, a serious thing not to register with the RTB. Uh, you can face a fine of up to €4,000. Indeed, uh, you could end up in prison for six months on conviction uh, if you did not register with the RTB. Uh, I'm sure mistakes are understood at times. Uh, as I say, Johnny Gurk uh, hasn't been taking our calls. We haven't been able to make contact with him. Let's speak uh, to one of uh, the constituency TDs, uh, Padre Tobin of AIN2. Uh, uh, an AIN2 TD for Mead West is on the line. Any thoughts on this, Padre Tobin? Yeah, I, I know Johnny obviously well. Uh, he's a constituency colleague, uh, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, and uh, there has to be the same standards for Sinn Féin as we expect from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Um, he's obviously admitted that his one of his houses, uh, I think he has four properties, um, that was not registered with the RTB. Um, he claims that it's the fault of the letting agency, um, but the law clearly states that it is the responsibility of the owner uh, of the property to make sure that the property is registered with the RTB. Uh, indeed, as you mentioned yourself, if it's not carried out after a period of time, it becomes a criminal offence. Um, and the RTB and registration of properties is there for the, the, the protection of tenants. And, and the background of this is that we've had a housing crisis that's been going on for 10 years, that we've had t- tenants who are being crucified with massive rents, uh, and many don't have the, the right terms and conditions and protections in their own homes. And when homes are being flipped, they're being thrown out. So we need an elected representative uh, class to be able to fulfill their responsibilities to the law for the protection of tenants uh, in this particular uh, occasion. We can't have people pontificating about uh, these issues if they're not willing to uh, fulfill the law themselves. And it was interesting, I I noted that Sinn Féin were very quiet on the issue of Robert Troy. While there were some Sinn Féin TDs out commenting on the issue for sure, I was surprised that Mary Lou and others weren't looking for um, uh, at least in the initial stages uh, for Robert Troy to resign um, and I was conscious of the fact that that was unusual because usually Mary Lou is very vociferous in terms of her attacks uh, on Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and this wasn't the occasion uh, the same on this occasion so um, it, it's clear 
why uh, and that's because some of the same sins if you like that uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been involved in uh, were also being committed by uh, members of Sinn Féin as well and I do think at this stage it's really important that now mm. that this has come out and that the media cycle has, has focused on this that we actually come to some level of reform in terms of the large political parties, especially Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Sinn Féin, mm. that they carry out an audit of all of their TDs in terms of their responsibilities for the registration of properties, uh, in terms of making sure that there, there's no conflict of interest, making sure that they uh, detail um, all of the different um, uh, assets that they hold, all the different interests they hold, any liabilities or debts that they hold, mm. because the elected you know, representatives need to be whiter than whites, and people need to know, you know, why they are making the decisions they're making in Leinster House. Well, one in twenty people in this country is a, a landlord. One in two TDs is a, a landlord. Eighty of the one hundred and sixty TDs are landlords. And that's not a crime. Robert Troy said he wasn't going to apologise for being a, a landlord, and I'm sure Johnny Gurk won't uh, apologise for being a landlord. Uh, but when you've got four properties, uh, I'm not sure if you'd describe Johnny Gurk as a, a professional landlord, uh, but he's somebody who's well-versed in it. Uh, and uh, as you say, the responsibility is on the landlord to register with the RTB. It's a very serious thing. It's covered by legislation. You have to do it. You can end up with a, a conviction, uh, an, a prison sentence for not doing it. Uh, the odd thing about this is, is that this property was initially registered. He did register or somebody regist- registered the property with the RTB, according to the report of the Irish Independent today. Uh, and then it lapsed. Uh, I, I find that peculiar. Yeah, it's it's a strange situation. So first of all, it, it's not a crime to be a landlord. Indeed, we need people to be landlords. Uh, we need people to have access to rental properties uh, when it suits them. And, um, you know, like it, it, it's important that landlords are able to make a living out of that particular role. Uh, and this is not an effort to demonize landlords uh, in any ways. But I do believe that it's important for our politicians to reflect society. Now, you mentioned the figure there, I think you said 1 in 20. Mm. I had heard it was 1 in 50 of the general population. I'm not sure which okay, is Okay, maybe it's 1 in 50. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah of the general population who are landlords. But that's a radical difference that when the ruling class, the elected representatives, is 1 in 2. Mm. Um, and, you know, we need more women in the doll. And the reason we need more women in the doll is we need society to be properly reflected in the doll so it can make better decisions in relation to the needs of people. Okay. Now, if half the doll are landlords, well, then they're going to be motivated by the profit motivation of being a landlord. Now, I believe a TD should be only motivated by the needs of their constituents. And you can't serve two masters at once. You can't serve the motivation of trying to increase your profits as a landlord and trying to look after the best interests of okay. tenants who themselves are, 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 are hammered at the moment in terms of costs as well. But the thing so, I don't understand about this, Patter, is, is that this property was registered with the RTB. That's what Johnny Gurk told the Irish Independent. And then he says the letting agency made a mistake and didn't re-register it. You have to register the property every year. And, as I understand it, the Residential Tenancies Board, the RTB, write to you. They email you every year now, since it's become a, an annual obligation. They email you and tell you, you your, your, your re-register date is coming up. They send you a reminder, in other words. So is it not peculiar that this was not registered? It, it, 
it is very strange and I don't know uh, what Johnny Gurk's uh, motivation is in terms of this and I would say to Johnny that it would suit he would do well for himself and for his constituents to come on your show and explain exactly the situation I do believe that you know, we can't be calling for accountability and transparency from the likes of Robert Troy uh, if opposition parties like Sinn Féin are not willing to provide the same transparency themselves. In my experience, uh, and I'm not saying this is the case with Johnny Gurk, but in my experience, sometimes landlords have dodged registration with the RTB um, if they're not declaring, uh, for example, uh, all of their uh, income mm. uh, for tax purposes. Now, but when you registered, uh, I think you're in the system, and they remind you, and you know, <laughs> I just, I, I, I don't know. It, I, it, it is an unusual one, but yeah. it, it's, mm. it is one that needs to be resolved. I think Sinn Féin needs to be very open yeah. in relation to this. How many other elected reps across the country, including councillors, okay. uh, are landlords, and you know, um, yeah. have they all of their uh, responsibilities, legal responsibilities, fulfilled? Okay, I, I, I'm sure Johnny Gurk knows. Uh, we're talking about him. I'm sure he knows that we've been trying to contact him. We've been trying to contact Johnny Gurk since early this morning. Uh, we've probably about five minutes worth of airtime left uh, before we finish up this week. Uh, he's welcome to come on in that time or sometime next week uh, if he wishes uh, to speak to our listeners. We'll thank you though for taking the time to talk to us uh, and for joining us as always Patrick Tobin Meath West TD for AIM2 Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, we'll talk a, a little bit about uh, this research from uh, the University of Limerick. I'm sure you've been hearing uh, about how five out of a, a group of 25 prostitutes uh, told the researchers uh, that members of the Gardaí had exploited them. Uh, but uh, let's speak to, to Daniel McLaughlin, who's uh, the Policy and Communications Officer with Ruama. Ruama supports women who are impacted by prostitution sex trafficking and other forms of commercial sexual exploitation. Good morning to you, Danielle, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, this report calls for the full decriminalisation of sex work. What do you make of that? It does, yes. And this report um, is focused on a very small minority in the sex trade. Realistically, um, the majority of the trade is online. Rahama um, works with three, over 300 women per year, um, and the majority of the women would be um, you know, experienced victims of sexual exploitation from, from online trade, um, and a number of them may be from street prostitution. But we have, over the years, noticed a, a, a steep decline in women uh, working on the street. So it's a point to make that this report really represents only that small minority. Um, but the full decriminalisation um, argument um, is to argue that the the experience of women and the abuse and violence of the experience um, is because that the decriminalisation the, the, the of the buyer is making things worse and making mm. things violent. But our argument, and you know, quite widespread across the world and Europe and policy, is that the violence is inherent in the sex trade um, and actually giving men and buyers. Um, permission to continue the abuse of women is actually going backwards. Um, Do do you think that um, the phrase sex worker uh, is used to try and legitimise that? Um, There's there's a cohort of people who prefer to identify as sex workers and Mm. there's no argument about that. I know, but is that uh, a a way of legitimising prostitution? It is. Um, I mean, the majority of the women that we work with as service users um, have experienced 
significant harm and trauma, and it will be long term. Um, and they usually, when they're when they're working with us, they're going through a period of recovery, um, and they will have awful physical and mental um, harm from the experiences that they've had. So, I mean, in, in our argument, um, we always advocate for the women and the protection of women mm. and that, you know, the drivers that push women into prostitution or in cases of traffic, yeah. trafficking has led them um, because of their vulnerabilities from poverty, from threats, from debt, from addiction, mm. from homelessness. And we I, need I to really address I, I imagine, I imagine there are some sex workers, but I, I would imagine for the most part, they're not sex workers in the way that you understand workers, that they're commodities. Uh, yeah, it's, for, a, it's a commodification for of... For the person selling them consent. and the person buying them. Yes. And, you know, the argument is, you know, should we, should we accept that um, commodification of sexual consent from women is acceptable. Mm. Um, from the the experiences of the women that come into Bahama, it's abuse, it's harm, um, it's multiple rape, and they describe it to us um, in in various forms that um, that manifest. You know, and and it also often hits them once they've exited the the trade. Um, so you, the argument is the full criminalization would actually go backwards and the introduction of the legislation in 2017 is to target those people exploiting the women. So the buyer is now um, criminalised and the women are decriminalised mm-hmm. and protected and there's a an effort on the part of the guards to protect women. What, do you, what do you make? Uh, what, 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 what did you make of uh, that finding? Uh, the five of uh, 25 uh, um, uh, does that come as any surprise to you? It's it's shocking. It's it's um the report is five women out of twenty five uh, have experienced harassment or violence in regards, and no. it is shocking. It's very sad to hear that. But had you heard um, that before from the women you work with? We we know that women have varying experiences um, over the years of treatment from the Gardaí, and what we're doing in Rahama is providing training to provide a trauma informed. Um, victim-centred support um, and, the, and the, there, a lot of guards are taking this this very seriously. They're taking women more seriously in terms of incidents of violent um, reports. Um, they are accepting and, and welcoming the welfare checks where guards go in to inspect premises and to check that the women are there of their own accord and that they're safe and that yeah. they're happy. But that's exploitation in the extreme and an awful uh, abuse of uh, power, authority uh, or whatever way uh, you want to look at it and it should be looked on very seriously, I'd have thought. Absolutely. And, mm. you know, it's, it's our... It's our mission and we're striving to work with organisations and frontline services to train um, people to have this informed approach, trauma-informed, victim-centred, um, and we're working to reach more hard-to-reach groups um, with other frontline services, homeless services, addiction services. Um, and it, there is a lot of work to do, and we are aware that you know there have been uh, incidents of guards involved in other areas of crime. So, you know, the, it, it's very hard to kind of to, you know, label that as representative, um, mm-hmm. and we do know that there have been reports of, you know, sex buyers posing with Gardaí as well. So, you know, um, 
the majority of the women in that research did not have that experience, that negative experience. Okay. Danielle, I'm out of time. I have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Danielle McLaughlin is the Policy and Communications Officer with Ruwama, which supports women impacted by prostitution, sex trafficking and other forms of commercial sexual exploitation. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.